Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of Nutanix Weekly. I'm your host, Andy White. So I've got Harvey Green and Jaira Cox. Hey, guys, how's it going? Howdy. Pretty well. Is it me or is it a little slower these days in terms of content coming out, not just for Nutanix, but for a lot of our vendors? Is Are we in that time of the year where we're getting ready to go into summer and people are starting to plan their vacations? Is that what's going on? I'd say it's either that or they're kind of like me right now and so busy that uh, you got to just figure it out. <laughs> Could be doing both. Could be very, very busy figuring out uh, where summer vacation is this summer. <laughs> also true. Um, well, it could be that we're really busy you know, trying to work, working, heads down, uh, solving real problems. It could be that uh, you know, vacation stuff's kicking in. It, it could be that uh, we've solved all the world's problems and now we just need to coast the rest of the way. Uh, Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you say, Andy. No buy in on that one. Well, you guys, I'm looking to retire. No, I'm just kidding. I, somehow I thought solving all the world's problems would feel different, uh, I guess. But there, there I go, having ex- expectations again. Well, let, let's start by solving this one. This one came off the Nutanix uh, community blog forum, and it's running stateful, stateful applications with Red Hat OpenShift on Nutanix HCI. All right, Harvey, define what the word stateful means in a technology world. Uh, so stateful... In, in Harvey's view, would mean that the state of that machine will move from one place to the other uh, across reboots. So sort of like persistent that we okay. use in the EUC world. All right, Jairo, what's stateful mean? Because I mean, stateful packet inspections, first time I ever heard that word. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, I would, agree. I would agree with Harvey, right? It means like what the app does gets written somewhere. Like persistent is a great word there, right? Like when you stop it and start it again, you know, what it did is preserved. It doesn't just wake up empty, you know, no record of uh, like transactions. And and that's important. Could be. I mean, <laughs> I depends if I guess if you work my bank, it could be very important. <laughs> well, unless you're spending and you want to go back to what you had the day before. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, Jared, it'd be very useful if my bank account started with a million dollars in it every day. And no matter what I did the next day, it'd just be at a million dollars again. That would work. That'd be, that would definitely not be very state preserving, would it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's kind of a good point. I mean, in some cases, stateful is good and you want it that way. In some cases, stateful is bad and you don't want it that way and you don't want it. What's an example where you'd want it? I wanted to start with zero every day. That would suck. (laughs) (laughs) Every day you can spend only what you're allowed to overdraw. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that 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 pin to a certain number value. It it actually matters what that number is. <laughs> I'd be at the bank at nine oh one out drawing out everything I could. Yeah, and back there the next morning, I'd be the Bill Murray of Bank of America. Groundhog's Day. <laughs> yes, I I yes I got it. All right. So, what's an example of when you would want? Well, first of all, let me give an example when you wouldn't want stateful, and that would be like non-persistent BDI, right? Whatever that uh, whatever that junk is you put in your virtual desktop that you don't want to be there for various reasons. I can tell you all ago, I fell for the, uh, there's a puppy dog lost outside email, and I clicked on it for whatever reason. And I got this big, ugly website, I hope came from my own team saying, ah, we got you. You shouldn't have been doing that. Anyway, I don't know. I closed it so fast. I don't know exactly what it said. <laughs> 
said something like I've been owned or something. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. But in this case, uh, stateful in the world of Nutanix and specifically in the world of Linux and more specifically in the world of Red Hat OpenShift. What's what's that mean? The, the, uh, Jira, answer that question and then also include what what is Red Hat OpenShift? It's been a while since we talked about it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in order, right, like uh, an app that could need statefulness could be like, in this case, and we'll talk about this example, like a database, right? If I want to run a database, you know, uh, for any use case other than managing Andy's bank account, then I'd want it to like record transactions and like, you know, save the data that I write to it. Um, probably applies to just about any application we run in the data center, right? If we give it storage and, and people would stream if that storage was not there, that application has some state to it. Um, and that, you know, only a, a small handful of things wouldn't fall in that, right? Like if I had a, a load balancer, maybe that, um, you know, I can send an API call to it to say, hey, add a, a new backend leg to the load balancer, and then maybe it goes away and it's very transient. That app has not a lot of state to it, right? When it boots up again, if it came up with nothing, I would re-inject all those same kind of routes and, and bring it back to life. But for the most part, just about everything would have state to it. Uh, OpenShift, right, is Red Hat's platform for running containerized applications um, uh, on their frameworks, of course, on Nutanix HCI as well. So a very valued partner of ours and a great way to run OpenShift. So if you're looking for a, an easy way to launch a containerized infrastructure, uh, very easily, right, and very consistently, and and actually have you know I, I think of it kind of as like a opinionated way to run containers, so that uh, kind of like if you're thinking about like a factory, you could of course install any number of container frameworks uh, and give yourself an empty factory, bare floors, you get to do everything from the ground up. Whereas I I think of OpenShift as more like a very opinionated, like this is where the conveyor belt already is, tooling's already here bring in your raw materials and just start cranking out the widgets that you want to make, right? So there's a lot of lot more things that are available to you and already pre-plumbed on day one when you open up open up business. Harvey, um, where does where does that fit in the world of Kubernetes and needing to run that stateful workloads? Well I mean the the biggest piece is the one that we've kind of already hit on a few times around whether or not you need uh, data to remain each day or each time that application is started again. Um, you know, if if you don't, if you know, if every day or every time that application is run, it's working a job to completion, and you just want it to do a new job to work to completion again, then you don't necessarily need something stateful. Um, but if you have, you know, something that uh, needs to keep a certain set of information every day or start with where it left off uh, the last time it was running, then you definitely would want something stateful that's keeping up to that or keeping up with that, I should say. <clears throat> well, and so, I mean, you touched on Kubernetes there, Andy, and this the article opens with a great discussion about, you know, polling the Kubernetes community, right? And recent respondents saying, you know, 90% of them saying absolutely ready for running stateful workloads. And then a good chunk of them, 70%, are already running it in production, right? So then it comes down to, you know, let's walk through kind of a, a an over-year lunch break lab exercise around how to actually get that up and running, you know, in a in a demonstrable fashion. So is this asking what percentage of Kubernetes users are able to do stateful versus the ones that can't? 
Mm, this survey, which it actually links to, right, talks about community perception of his Kubernetes community perception of his Kubernetes ready to run production workloads uh, with stateful applications, right? And that's the overwhelming 90% there, you know, is a, is a yes. And then most of those people saying yes already are doing it as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm, I guess I don't live in that world. So I really don't uh, know where you know, containerized workloads have had statefulness and where they haven't, I guess, is it, was there a big percentage of time where it wasn't available as a persistent workload, a stateful workload? <clears throat> so by native, by, by default, when you, when you launch a container running an application, right, the container itself is not changing. Um, I'm not sure if it's a hundred percent immutable intrinsically, but it doesn't change. It's not, you're not saving data into the container you have to give it external storage, right? Where it can, you know, keep notes to itself, write configurations, uh, even write, you know, actual contents like a database container would write the actual database uh, tables and payloads and so forth. Yeah. So, so until you're providing that that container as storage, storage for your containers, your containers probably aren't saving much. No, they can connect to other databases. They can connect to backend systems, um, pull down configuration data to, to provision themselves, but, but uh, yeah, the, by itself, it's not, there's not a provision for, for that kind of storage. And, and that's kind of by design, right? That's how Kubernetes was built. The idea of a container where it would have its database and it was the application workload and it, it would get what it needed for a, like a config and, but it, and it would run, but then it would write its data to the database and then it would just go away or reset back to its original state when you, when it was turned off and back on. Totally. Yeah. 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 So like in the, in the, parlance or in like the framework of, you know, let's say enterprise IT 20 years ago, right? Where I had to build a server to run an application. The application came with an installer, right? Next, next, finish. And I brought the storage in the form of whatever I gave that server, physical or virtualized. Um, and then, you know, of course, the that app packaging, right? That like that MSI file had to unpack the, the application workload and then tailor it for that environment it was going to run in. And containerization says, let's get rid of all of that, right? I don't need to unpack it. I don't need to tailor it. I can literally just take it from a file I download from the web to it is running um, pretty much instantly, right? Within configurable networking, configurable storage, but the the application itself doesn't have to get modified to, to then be able to instantiate. Yeah, I'm kind of seeing this like, you know, I move into an apartment or a condominium or a house and I got to unpack, get all my stuff there and my stuff's there and all that goes along with the baggage of my stuff being there is there. Uh, versus the Kubernetes where it's coming in and and I leave the next day and somebody cleans it back to the original state. In this case, I can leave a little, I can leave a little me behind. So when I come back, I'm not starting over. Yeah, yeah, in some ways, right? I mean, your Groundhog Day analogy from before is, is a bit apt. Yeah. Um and, and what's an example of things I would leave behind? Configuration type of information? Um, yeah, for sure. Right. Like I run, I run a containerized, uh, load balancer here at my house that, that, you know, it writes notes to itself about, you know, what backend sites do I want to proxy or load balance and what, how to access them and what ports and, uh, health monitors. Right. So the actual code that runs the load balancer doesn't change when I start or stop the container, but when it does start up, you know, it, it, uh, or after an, a container update, it finds that configuration file on the storage I've presented to it and it will reconfigure itself. And, and what's the magical piece of Nutanix hyperconverged that makes that happen? So in this case, like, and what this article uh, illustrates, right? 
is actually that uh, the CSI driver, right? The container storage um, uh, driver that lets the containerized framework, in this case, like OpenShift, know how to, how do I request storage resources from the Nutanix cluster that I'm running on, right? In this case, we'll, it'll use like a, a Nutanix volumes, so like a block storage um, uh, presentation. It could also be, you know, uh, files over SMB or NFS, but uh, for this example, it's going to be block storage via volumes to say, here's here's storage just for that one application. Okay. Harvey, any comments? Um, not yet. Um, as you kind of talked about, this is a little outside of my box. So I'm, I'm going to let Mr. Jari keep going and I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> Well, that's the question. I mean, I think we've introduced the concept and the reason why I don't know that we want to go through how to do it uh, necessarily, Jaira, right? That wouldn't be good listening for our audience. Is there? We definitely should summarize like the actual bits of code for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the technical Nutanix blog for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let you want to walk through the different pieces here? Yeah. To whatever the verbal spoken equivalent of like a pseudo code would be from, from our, you know, CS 101 programming classes. Um, in this case, you know, this article is actually the fourth of a four-part series talking about deploying OpenShift on Nutanix. Um, so it assumes you are at this point have a Nutanix uh, environment running OpenShift with the CSI driver already injected. And if if you're not up to that level, right, we, um, the previous blog post will get you there. <clears throat> Once you have all that, right, the article talks about installing installing Git, installing the OpenShift CLI. And then Helm, which is like a multi-package manager, right? It's a way to install applications onto the Kubernetes framework. And then verify the CSI operator storage. So does my OpenShift environment know how to talk to Nutanix, know how to authenticate, and then actually be able to request new storage provisioning? That let's assume that you get a yes uh, out of all of that, the way the in the blog author, blog author, author does as well. If not, you know, go back and, and try again or, or troubleshoot. Um, and then install Postgres, right? So some Helm commands here for how do I install Postgres, right? A database uh, engine onto my Kubernetes, aka OpenShift um, environment. So uh, install Postgres, verify that it's been running. Um, that, that'll be listed there in your running pods. And then um, it, there's a command here for getting the PVC, which is the pers persistent volume claim, which is what storage have I requested for this application? And there's a reference there. And then the, the blog post also gives you uh, a couple of scripts to run. <clears throat> scripts to, uh, let's see, I lost my place here. So, oh yeah, so we create some, some data, right? So create some new tables uh, within Postgres. So we're creating persistent data that we need to, to you know, uh, have that application state, right? That needs to remain even after terrible things happen to the application. How do I make sure that that data uh, sticks around and, and is useful? And then uh, another script that will snapshot that database volume every five minutes. So we've created data. And then after a couple of minutes, we'll have a few snapshots over time, right? So how would I do data protection in a containerized uh, application world? <clears throat> okay. And then some more commands here given in the, in the blog post article. Yeah. Okay. To run. Yeah. Right. To validate the script, the tables, to create the scripts, run them. Yeah. Okay. And then verify that all scripts are running in the background. Uh, 
So then we connect to the Postgres database and it gives the sample credentials here. Don't use these credentials in production, please, and thank you. But for a lab environment, you can use these, use these credentials. And you should see that those tables exist, right? That we created uh, as proof of like able to create data that should persist. So then we see our data, everything's healthy. Uh, and then also over time, right, we should see that there's, uh, the article calls out five volume snapshots that have been created, right? So every five minutes it's gonna snap that, snap that uh, application volume. So now we have our database running, it's got data in it. You would even think in a regular old school uh, fashion, right? Take the containers out of it. We have, an, we have a database running, there's data, data within that database and we have some data production snapshots of that data. Now we're doing it in a very fancy, you know, web scale modern way of doing it with a containerized database and CSI driver storage for containerized apps. Um, but fundamentally, right, we have a database with data in it. So now we need to, you know, we need our chaos monkey, right? We're going to cause the failure and then prove that we can recover from it, and we, that we've preserved that application state as we do that, right? Well, and that's and that maybe that's the key for me is this is starting to make sense in terms of now, if that were to, if that container were to, something were to happen to it, we wouldn't, we would have what we need to bring it right back up or um, is it, is it, well, yeah, right. Make it, you know, available again instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What, you know, depending on your availability model, availability zones, but you know, something bad happens. How do I reinstantiate that application? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay whether that's a recovery and, and the next cabinet over, uh, the next row over, next data center, you know, depending on what you, how far you've replicated the data. But also, and I think this will get to this later on in the blog post, we have snapshots over time as well, right? And it's a database. I mean, I, I know that we know, none of us know a database that's ever had like uh, an error caused by like actual human error within it. But if such a thing were to ever happen, the ability to go back in time, like five minutes to before the error happened, that seems like it could be useful in certain certain circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so for this for this example, this walkthrough, um, the chaos monkey is going to be we as the human are simply going to uh, uninstall Postgres, so no more database engine, right? That pod, that entire pod goes away from Kubernetes, <clears throat> and then delete that volume claim, right? So there goes the storage for that application. Um, so then to restore it right from the latest available snapshot, there's a command here given to create uh, a new volume claim, a new persistent volume claim PVC from the uh, most recent snapshot. And I won't read the code to you here, but you should look that up and use that. Once the, the claim is online, now we'll reinstall a fresh copy of Postgres basically from the internet, right? Like if I had a brand new Kubernetes environment that had no uh, cached pods and no images in my uh, container repository, I could still fetch this, you know, latest uh, um, Postgres image, fire it up, connect it to that to that storage level, storage layer, and then the next, you know, the next command is we're logging into Postgres and we're seeing what data exists in these tables within the database. Mm -hmm. And of course, we should see what we what we expect there. And then um, the last example given here, right, is what if we wanted to roll back to an earlier snapshot, an earlier state, right, of that database? We could actually create a new uh, a new volume claim pointing to an earlier snapshot, and we'd be able to compare those over time to say, here's the earlier data, earlier data, the older data, the newer data. Um, those can be different, and yet both access at the exact same time. So then I could even deploy 
you know, a second copy of Postgres, one to point to the first snapshot while one's pointing to the, the last snapshot all at the exact same time. I, so, think, you, I think you've blown Harvey's mind. <laughs> I am learning. <laughs> I'm sorry, and or thank you. Um, whatever, whatever kind of Monday you're having, Harvey, there you go. Both. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of the state that I usually live into. Um, but, you know, because this is a key capability, right? Why does this matter? It's because, you know, enterprises are wanting to build and run containerized apps, even if it's like in this case, Postgres, right? You know, like companies run Postgres all day, every day. That used to could have been in a virtual machine. And then tomorrow that can be in a container, right? Same Postgres, same outcome for the business if it's, in a, it's a database. So I need to make sure that we maintain the same capabilities around data protection, recoverability uh, that we had in the old world where it would be a database in a VM tomorrow with the database in a container, but same capabilities, right? Of roll back, roll forward, protect data, recover data, keep the business running. Is this really just an example of you know, your enterprise Linux workloads and that meshing up with Nutanix hyperconverge and all the beauty that goes along with that kind of all those things meeting and all of a sudden things become possible that weren't possible before. I think that's uh, a cool way to think about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there are some elements to that um, with Linux. I mean, containers on windows are a thing as well. And then really what I think the Nutanix part of the magic, magic we bring here, right. Is that ability to say, to sort of easily provide actually you think just like we did you know 12 years ago with the birth of hci you know i create vms and they also have storage and it's nice and simple well now i have containers and they also have storage and it's all nice and simple yeah and this is taking uh containers to a world where it wasn't before and the applications the applicability of it becomes extended well, and I think well with with enterprise data protection, right, like snapshotting and rollback, roll forward, um, combined with also um, not having to reinvent any wheels, right? Like you could buy a Nutanix cluster. You know, we've all talked about the foundation process here. That thing comes to life. Uh, you know, the morning it hits the loading dock if you want it to, right? If you've got your VLANs set up on the switches, that cluster is, is online real, real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now it can be running uh, OpenShift the exact same day. Oh, and by the way, it can be running OpenShift with enterprise-grade storage that afternoon, and you're running applications in production by close of business, right? So very, very uh, dramatically short time to value compared to lots of other ways you could do this, right? To like write your own application storage level, but you'd be almost, uh, you know, building toys for your toys at that, at that point, right? Versus right. like, I just turn on enterprise-grade features. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I, it's not necessarily my wheelhouse, but I, I get why it would be applicable if it if it was. Cool. I think it's I think it's very exciting stuff. I I also um, this is the kind of stuff that I usually tend to save for my like lab hours, you know, it, late at night versus uh, uh, you know things that I'm I'm fully proficient in myself. But we're all we're all getting there together. Yeah. Right. Well, Harvey, any uh, additional thoughts or comments on this? No, I mean, I, I guess the thing that, that I would say that, I mean, it's, it's funny. I think I continue to, to say this uh, on, on the podcast, the more that we do um, and the more that we highlight, it just highlights to me how flexible this, this Nutanix solution really is. Um, you can have, you know, something like this, being able to run the, the stateful applications that are Linux-based and 
uh, you know, have that be your entire workload and not touch a whole separate thing that Nutanix can do. And then, you know, the same for databases, the same for EUC, the same for uh, just random file servers. Like this is, this is a hugely flexible system. Um, it's, it's hard to find holes. <laughs> you, you could picture a company that would like buy Nutanix for its, you know, EUC needs, buy Nutanix right. for its application developers. And the developers go, oh, wait, it can run desktops too? And the, right. the EUC guys would go, wait, what are containers, right? And it's like, they're on the exact same platform. Yeah. Yeah, that's key. I mean, that's it's really cool. And it solves a lot of business challenges. And maybe there are different clusters. And maybe in some organizations, just all one big cluster. It doesn't matter. Totally. Yeah. Hey, Jai, I wanted to ask you about the syntax of this one right here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm down, man. Let's go. Well, I was looking through there trying to find one that I totally didn't understand. And to be honest, there wasn't one. Can I Google faster than Andy can ask the question? Maybe. <laughs> we'll find out. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you jumping on and talking about uh, containers and OpenShift and the ability to do stateful workloads in a Nutanix world. Cool. Absolutely. Appreciate y'all. Talk to y'all next week. Have a good week.